I think it's really important that we use the tools, the technology, and the data that we have at our disposal to really understand our customer and prospect better and to curate that journey. Welcome to the Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. Today's guest is Chief Analytics Officer at 14 West, Grace Epperson. Grace has more than 20 years of experience in data, analytics, marketing, and people leadership. Since 2011, she's led 14 West's business intelligence team in working with 700-plus users across a worldwide network of publishing affiliates. In this episode, Grace and Cindy discuss what she's learned in that role and how her and her team's mindsets have evolved over the years. Grace also shares her take on why a liberal arts education is valuable in technology industries, plus how data can help marketers create personalized and impactful customer experiences. Enjoy all that on this episode with 14 West's Grace Epperson. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for you to use search and AI to analyze your company's data. Lightning fast. Business people at companies like Walmart, Hulu, and 7-Eleven use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can too. Learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. This week on The Data Chief, I'm pleased to welcome Grace Epperson, the Chief Analytics Officer of 14 West, the Agora Companies. Welcome, Grace. Thanks, Cindy. Thanks for having me. And Grace, you're calling in from beautiful downtown Baltimore, right? Yes, that's right. So I was talking with my family last night. The Inner Harbor had only just been revitalized and become the hot spot when I was in college many, many years ago. But Mm -hmm. um, so do you spend a lot of Friday nights at the Inner Harbor? I don't. I live actually outside of town. So our offices are about 10 blocks north of that downtown area you're speaking of. Um, And it is it's bustling. Actually, I was just driving through and thinking how much the skyline still looks the same as before. But then when you're really down there and you see all the shops and all of the, you know, different things that have um, kind of grown up around that harbor area. It's it's really different, but we don't get down there too much, although we did eat down there last Friday night. So that was fun. Okay, good, good, good. So tell us about 14 West and the Agora Companies, Grace. Sure, sure. So the Agora Companies uh, are a holding company for publishing entities that are responsible for marketing um, information directly to consumers who are looking to take control of their financial decisions and health decisions. A lot of the information that we put out there is um, you know, not mainstream. It's not the things that you necessarily find in the mainstream press, um, and that's what makes us unique, right? So we're looking for individuals who are really looking to take charge of their health and their finances and just really you know, be independently minded. And so it's a lot of digital marketing. And then I work for 14 West where we're responsible for all of the um, applications and the tools and the data that helps support that. So I lead the business intelligence team and we provide a lot of the analytics, um, a lot of the, you know, just decision support that's needed for making those marketing and business decisions. Great. So when you talk about content and marketing, it's articles and information to consumers. 
That's right. It's information. It's newsletters, um, different trading services, financial trading services, um, ways to invest and, and really just take charge of, of those, those things that are important to you. Right. And global. Yes. Yes, that's right. We have offices all around the world. Um, we're based in Baltimore, but we have offices in Australia and Europe and South America, um, India, just all over. And we actually just recently started an office in Japan. Okay. And so being a B2C business, that's potentially a lot of emails or messages every month. How many messages do you deliver each month? Yeah. So email is our uh, primary means of communicating with our subscribers. And right now we send just over a billion messages a month um, so our, to our readers. So you know, in a given year, that's, you know, it's quite a bit of volume of, of mail, but then also a lot of data that gets created from doing that as well. Right. So uh, uh, large volumes of data. And I know that Agora Company has grown over the years. So bringing in data from acquisitions, growing quickly. Tell me how you've navigated that. It's been challenging for sure. Um, We are slowly trying to go through a digital transformation where we're able to modernize our our MarTech stack, um, but we still have some legacy systems, right? And so when we're trying to onboard new businesses, there's always the constraint of the timetable that's sort of set from, from the main stakeholders. And then we're also trying to, at the same time, um, you know, create ways of doing it so that it is more scalable and flexible. So that's always the challenge is to really try to meet that demand and also try to, you know, create an ecosystem where we can bring in data and look at it, you know, agnostically and um, seamlessly. Excellent. And so as you think about the growth that the Agora Companies has gone through and how that impacts data, there was a quote from one of your leaders in an article at the end of last year, the lights were on but at 14 West, Mm -hmm. but we were unable to provide the innovation needed, the thought leadership in our business, and we had to be more agile. Mm -hmm. How has that impacted your data team? Um. It has for sure. So we have not gone fully agile with the way that we do things um, within within my team, within the business intelligence team. But over the last two years um, or so, we've brought in lots of agile practices. So you know, when we're putting together a new dashboard or something, we definitely still follow you know just a more project management driven uh, workflow. But we have you know different things that we do that we make sure that we're being agile about it, um, and which includes like you know when you sit down to get requirements from somebody. Um, especially when it comes to visualizations and, you know, information they need to see to make data-driven decisions, they really don't know what they want, right? Right. So they don't know what they want until they see it. Exactly. And so what we try to do is really quickly put together something and then put that in front of them and have the conversations early on. And I think it's really um, been helpful for the team to think about that as, you know, before it was always like, oh, the scope change, the scope creep, you know, all that. And now that we just really think about, well, you know what, we're going to go into it without as much information. We're going to apply our best, you know, knowledge to this, you know, and and do what we think is best, right? Sort of be consultative in in what we deliver, but then just make it much more of a conversation with the customer to really make sure that the product meets their needs. Generally, we find that it doesn't really take that much longer to do it that way. It's just a mindset shift um, for, you know, for for the folks on my team to just know that what they're going to start with and and the requirements that they do start with aren't necessarily going to be, you know, what we end up with at the end. 
Excellent. So you've changed the design process and the thinking mm-hmm. of the people to be consultative, collaborative, and more of a conversation. Exactly. Good, yep. good. Now, you also shared recently with me a story about bringing in a new technology and how you had to sell the technology internally. And it was also finding out what shadow IT was spread throughout the organization. So how do you view shadow IT? Is it really in the shadows or is this where some of the ideas come from? I can't speak to it, you know, for all organizations, but I can say for ours, I do think that it is... um you know, very relevant and prevalent. I think it's necessary. And I think that the businesses, you know, some of the businesses are as big as Agora was when I first started back in 1999. So, you know, over 200 people big, a quarter quarter of a billion dollars of turnover. I mean, these are larger um, organizations that really need um, to have that sort of technical expertise in-house. Um, so I definitely think that there's a place for it. And really what it it requires is that strong partnership with the enterprise, um, so that true data stewardship. Um, and we've had, you know, some good success um, working in a couple of different models with our publishing affiliates. You know, some of them they just want to work with us directly, and they're happy to just use what we provide. And others are looking to do other more innovative things or things that are much more. Um, you know, tailored to what they're looking for. And I think there's a real opportunity to partner with them. But I do firmly believe that as an organization, because we all still, you know, serve, you know, Agora and making sure that we're not um, being inefficient um, with with the uh, resources that we have is if there's a way that we can lift the data once and make it available through these different technologies we have, I'm a firm believer in doing that because I think that is the hardest part um, and finding tools um, that, you know, enable that and kind of make the heavy lifting, you know, able to be done once and just the availability to be widely spread, I think is really the best. Yeah. I mean, the dream is that data that in a way you don't have to move data or you don't have to mm-hmm. move it so often inside every BI and analytics platform. Just just keep it in one place. Mm-hmm. So is modernizing the data architecture part of that as you've gone from, you mentioned 10 years ago, quarter of a billion, couple hundred people. Now it's one and a half billion in revenues um, and thousands of people spread around the world. Mm-hmm. How do you adapt the data architecture with that kind of growth? Yeah, so we have made we made investments in Hadoop um, and in thinking that that would be where we kind of put everything. And I definitely think that will have a place in our architecture. Um, but we're finding that the speed and scale at which we need to work to really get rid of the technical debt and to build up the new ecosystem of data that still allows us to cover all of the business data that we need to, it's really like trying to, you know, it's just like trying to change the tires at 60 miles an hour. So it's incredibly difficult to do. And um, it's it seems like, especially when I look at 2019 and the progress that we didn't make in that, a lot of it had to do with the other kind of enterprise projects that came in. Like we were replacing our entire emailing system. Um, and, and that took a lot of time, you know, on, on the part of our team um, to just support that. It's just incredibly difficult to do both things, but they are both part of our strategy. And I think that it also just, you know, requires sort of staying on top of what are the technologies that are available because we're finding that with, um, 
you know, the Hadoop technology, while it's very powerful, um, it's hard for our SQL developers to really do as much in it and do as, as much quickly, you know, so we're looking at other te- technologies like Snowflake and um, MemSQL and other things that just sort of help, you know, from the point where we're, where we have the responsibility to sort of consume it and make it available um, analytically, I think it's important that you kind of look at the whole landscape. And then the other thing that I really want to move forward on, which makes my team a little grumpy, is the deprecation of all of the existing stuff, right? Because that that never goes away. No. Um, <laughs> but we bring in new, and I if you're never, lucky, things yeah. die a slow death, but that's about it. So why are they grumpy about it? They don't because like change? It's just or? because we're trying to do a lot of different things at once, and we definitely um, want that to be a concerted effort to, to make it painless. They're the ones who are going to hear when users are upset because something's gotten deprecated. So just the idea of doing that on top of bringing in all the new, I think is just overwhelming. Yeah. Um, So how do you prioritize and how do you keep them focused? Maybe not on the new, but more the business value that the new can bring. Yeah, I think that it starts with doing some analysis of our own and then, you know, taking away some of the things that we know we absolutely, that we know are available in other tools. And then I think it also is, you know, my on me to go to the different executive stakeholders within the publishing businesses and basically say, like, I need your support as well as we go to do these things, um, you know, because we can get the information in other places. So it's really about just getting that buy-in from the top. And then of course, on the day-to-day level, sitting with those users and showing them that this other tool can get them that exact same thing. And you know, sometimes that means building it for them um, and just really walking alongside of them. So all of those things take a lot of time and effort and care, um, which is why it, it's a slow process, but we really need to begin that process and have a strategy around it or it really won't ever happen. And I have a commitment to my executive leadership after having made investments um, in new BI tools like ThoughtSpot that we do need to make the footprint of what we have much smaller, right, over over the next couple of years. The tech footprint. Yeah, exactly. The the overhead of it. mm -hmm. But you have goals of expanding the reach of data to all all the executives. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so you shared with me a term that I thought was his- historical, sad, but true, but the Agora tax. So mm-hmm. are they viewing data and analytics spend, let's say, mm-hmm. still as a tax or no, it's the cost of doing business and it empowers them to segment and serve the customers better? I think that that most of the folks we work with do view it in as 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 an investment. Um, I think it's hard when you're not in in this space to exactly understand um, how adding more tools helps, especially if you're like the everyday user and you're like, well, I can already do what I you know, need to do. So I don't really understand why I need to learn this new tool. Um, but I think generally speaking, as far as all the different centralized services go, most folks do feel that they get the value from it. Um, some of it is, is really just the fact that we have uh, entire team of customer success folks, non-technical folks or marketers and understand their world, um, spend time with them. So I think that they see a great deal of value in that um, because it's almost like we're an extension of their team. So I do think that they see see it more as a value rather than a tax. But that is a term that we use um, (laughs) in our organization because you depending on what billing model we've used over the years, it does feel like, well, I don't really know why we're having a discussion about this because I am just going to have to pay it. And that's where that term came from. 
Well, maybe we should go value added tax VAT and then <laughs> VAT. it's revenue share, revenue share, <laughs> profit share. Um, exactly. There you go. So, it, you know, one of the things in the industry in general, but that I've heard you speak at different events about is the challenge of data fluency or mm-hmm. data literacy. How are you tackling that within your organization? Well, actually, this Monday, I'm very excited. We have um, a full-time instructional designer who's been hired, and she's starting to um, this Monday, and she's going to be dedicated to just working with my team and building out a curriculum um, designed to help with data literacy, but then also to help with understanding the BI tools, so the mechanics of the BI tools, the data itself, like which I think is more there's no way people are going to memorize all of that, right? So it's really more about making it a place where when you have a question about what something means, how can you easily get to it? How can it be governed well, make sense in layman's terms, not system terms um, or, you know, really obscure Agora terms even that we tend to use. Um, And then lastly, just how to teach people to be analytical, right? Which is really, really um, it's situational learning. And this yeah. is something that that I don't have experience in. I don't understand how adults like become analytical or or you know just are that way. And um, I, I'm really interested to see how she approaches that. And we're really looking at her to sort of consult with us on building that out. Yes, you'll have to let us know because th- this is. I mean, the World Economic Forum even has like critical thinking as the new number one mm. skill for the future of work, mm-hmm. and it is a hard thing mm-hmm. to teach. It is. But do you believe people can learn it? Is it or is it an innate skill? I think a little bit of both. I do think that it's it can be a learned skill. Um, it definitely needs to be done within the context of their job and they need to be able to see success from having put in that effort so that they then want to continue to dig and, you know, work harder at it. Um I, I definitely feel like to some degree though. We have to also think about our hiring practices and the way that we set up our organization. I think that when we bring in marketers uh, into Agora, you know, we're very, we kind of expect them to do everything, right? So you could be setting up a code in a system, then setting up the email to go out, and then you also need to be looking at your numbers. And maybe we need to relook at the different skill sets that are needed for those different functional roles and break some of that apart. So it doesn't mean that, you know, we can't we can't make the the data and information available to everybody, but I do think that as things get more um, complex, that there is an opportunity to specialize and perhaps create some of those data stewards within the businesses that can really kind of help. And they're part of you know the business rather than part of my team, so people feel like they can you know pretty much have access full access to that individual or instead of individuals at all times. So it's really more about democratizing the more um, advanced analytical skills and then making that readily available to the businesses um, in a very contextualized way. Because I think that's where we run into issues is like when when folks on my team, you know, we kind of drop into a situation we don't know the context of everything that's been happening. Um, so even if we can look at something and say, well, there's a trend. And then immediately the business says back, well, that's because we did, you know, X, Y, and Z. And it's kind of like, oh, you know, so I think that bringing together that business context and the highly analytically skilled person is really critical to our strategy. 
I agree. So right now you're more in a centralized model moving to this hybrid model. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so I think it's great for sure when I was at Gartner and also looking at research from McKinsey, all, all the models work. It's a matter of how much you gravitate towards centralized, decentralized, but the hybrid business model has a bigger business impact. Mm -hmm. So I I think it's great that you're moving towards that. So Grace, you've been with the Agora companies for a number of years. And when you think about some data chiefs, they leave and come back or move around in different industries. If you think back over the span of your time in the data world and at the Agora companies, what are the biggest changes you've seen? And did you ever think at a point in time, I just can't, I can't do this? Yeah, that's a good question. So the first half of my career um, wasn't really focused in the data and analytics space. It was much more in a marketing and operational role. And so when I came back to Agora, because I actually was there for seven years and, and left and ran a marketing consultancy for about four Um, When I came back to run the BI team, um, I really didn't actually have intentions on staying in the space because that's not, you know, kind of where I had um, planted my roots in my career at that point. But once I got into it and realized, you know, how much more challenging and exciting and valuable it was for the business than, than being on, you know, the marketing side, not that the marketing is not important, but I was just really given a unique opportunity to be able to influence the marketing and also be on the the, the data side of things. And that was just really exciting to me. Yeah. Um, so during that journey, since that, that was since 2011 that that happened, um, it was really around 2015 or so when um, I was given the opportunity to run our client services team as well. And I did that for about a year. Um, and I realized that when dividing my focus between client services and also trying to bring you know, data and analytic value to the organization, that they were definitely things that were, um, they were both really big, important jobs and I had to pick. And it was that point in my career that I kind of decided that I was going to stay on the data side of things. And, and, and that was pivotal because that really just making that full commitment allowed me to get deeper into what are the technologies, what are the ways that we can grow this, um, you know, service for, to be right-sized, um, for the Agora companies and to really propel, you know, the companies forward with, with, um, just excellent, you know, world-class, uh, BI and analytic tools. Yeah. In, in a way it, it sounds to me, Agora really being a marketing company as well, it sounds like you were coming more from the business side and bringing your business knowledge, your marketing knowledge into the data and tech side. That's that correct. Right? Yeah. That is right. Yeah. And then I had the good fortune of of partnering with a lot of, you know, technology folks who were able to bring to life and make sure that, you know, um, that we were able to bring together the best of those things, right? So the marketing and business consultation side, along with all the technology um, decisions and, um, you know, strategy decisions we need to make around how to structure the team so that we could deliver the most value. Yeah, I think having the both skills is the best of both worlds. And when I look at the career path for some data chiefs, some have risen up through the tech side and some through the business side. And I often get the question, what's easier? What's harder? What's your opinion? That's a really good question. You hadn't I, thought about it before. <laughs> I, I really hadn't because I feel like, I don't know. I, I think that 
You know what though? There are folks on my team who have come in without any technical background and, and um, they have really learned the business and then moved over to the technical side. Um, and I found that that journey has actually been really good because they've, they, when they go to do their technical work, they never just kind of look at the task in front of them. So that to me seems like a path that makes sense, but that's probably because I'm not technical. So <laughs> I can't think offhand of somebody who came in, you know, the other way um, and then really made, you know. You're technical enough. You're talking yeah. Hadoop, you're talking cloud, you're talking yeah. SQL. Uh, exactly. Yeah, I think you're technical enough, but but always thinking of the business use case, exactly. it sounds like to me. Um, great. So you and I share an interesting background, career path. What was your major in school? Um, I started as a journalism major. And then right. when I transferred, I ended up in um, just a regular communications major with a marketing focus. So it's interesting. I was an English major uh, focused on writing, and we recently had a guest speaker at a ThoughtSpot product offsite, Vino, the co-founder of Sun, one of the richest men, brightest men in the world. We're debating AI ethics and what have you and the talent gap. And he was saying, well, I don't know if people really should be having a liberal arts background when we look at the demand in tech, what's your take on this? Because I've seen so many people successfully make, I guess, make the cross across the date, the great divide. Um, I think that, you know, the liberal arts education is still alive and well. Um, I think there's a place for that because I think that you're going to become a lifelong learner and there's lots of opportunity to to learn the technical side of things. Um, in our team, we really strongly believe in an apprenticeship model anyway. So of course we want to make sure that as we're bringing in new team members, um, that the skills are there. Uh, but at the same time, if there's somebody who starts on the team and they you know, show that they're interested and critically curious and they're willing to invest their time and energy to learn the technical skills, you know, that person to me is is much more valuable and well-rounded um, than the person who kind of comes in with that, you know, high level skill and really just wants to be kind of given a stack of requirements um, because, you know, got the red people, the blue people, we really still need those purple people. Yes. Um, especially in, in my organization, I found that they're the ones who are the most successful and they're the ones who are going to be holding, you know, the roles that you and I have today, right? I find. Yeah. Yeah. The purple people. I remember, uh, TDWI conference many years ago, Dave Wells would remember this, we actually got purple shirts to show that the hybrid talent mm -hmm. is is better. And I think this is the thing with the te very technical degrees, we need a little bit of the liberal arts education in there for some of the creativity, the collaborative design, the critical thinking. So another thing we share, um, you know, there's not many women in tech. I would say there's more in data or in business analytics. How have you navigated this? What works for you? And what do you wish the industry would do differently? This is definitely really important to me. I have two daughters. They're 19 and 9. Um, and being that I'm, you know, in the field that I'm in and, and understanding sort of the opportunities in tech, I'm really pushing them towards that. I don't know if that's where they'll end up, um, but I certainly would want them to have every you know advantage and opportunity. Um, you know, I'm happy to say that on our team, we actually looked. We actually have. I think we actually have more women than men. 
um, on okay. the business intelligence really? team. Now, okay, now, so do we have reverse unconscious bias <laughs> going on here? I hope not. I hope not. I hope we're just hiring the best candidates. But I do think that it's important to look at those areas and for there to be programs and a real concerted effort to bring exposure early on um, to girls. Like the Girls Plus Data program is is something that I looked in into. I know that, that, that ThoughtSpot's really big into working with them. But those types of programs are really important for awareness. Um, and it's not just limited to girls. It's limited to, you know, any anybody who wouldn't naturally have access and understanding to the opportunities that tech brings. I think that's who needs to be brought, you know, just to be made aware that this is out, that, that these opportunities exist. Yeah. I mean, I do think teaching it at a younger age and even though girls plus data, they use the term girls plus data, but boys are definitely welcome. And when we sponsor a workshop, I say to the volunteers, I want mixed, mixed Mm -hmm. volunteers. So, so that's important. Um, you know, the other thing, Agora, being a marketing organization and given your desire to use data to better segment and personalize, segment your customers and personalize the experience, we have a lot of concerns about privacy, data privacy. How are you navigating that? Yeah, that's a really tough one because interestingly enough, the thing that we need to create the most personalized experience is more data on that individual. Yeah. Um, so it becomes opt this, in more, right? <laughs> it becomes <laughs> this, more, share more, right? Yes. Exactly. It becomes this catch 22 where, um, you know, in order to create that highly personalized experience that still brings them the content and the information that they're seeking, you do need to, you know, have access to that information. But then of course there's privacy and you need, there are laws now that are, you know, designed to protect the consumer. So I think that these things are in opposition to each other, um, to some degree, but you know, what we're doing at the Agora companies is we really are trying to shift the mindset of our marketers, um, to think about, you know, that journey and that customer experience, because we, we truly believe if you follow that, we've always been in the relationship business, right? Even even newsletters when they were, um, you know, printed up and mailed out to the individual, it's it's very much like what we're doing right here. It's a very personal conversation, and so we've always been into that one to one relationship. I think when we took it digitally, it was easy to just sort of to blast that out to everybody and be happy with. Hmm, well, if one percent of them respond, that seems okay, or even two or three percent of them. But that's just not okay anymore because the ninety-seven percent whom you've now created a very poor experience for, um, you know, that spam. doesn't. Yeah, yeah exactly. They're going to call it spam. Yep. They're going to, yeah, they're going to call it spam, and and you probably damaged a future relationship that you could have had with that individual, right? So I think it's really important that we use the tools, the technology, and the data that we have at our disposal to really understand our customer um, and prospect better, and to curate that journey. Um, and so we, you know, we we are working towards that, and just even in having tools that surface that lowest grain of data to the um, to the marketer so that they can see, wow, that person, we sent them 18 communications in two days. That's that's a terrible experience. That is, yeah, that's, oh and my that, gosh, that that's a lot. That might have been something that you would have never seen in you know a, a typical BI report, right? That may not have ever surfaced um, in a typical BI report, but just being able to, to, to realize that that's not a good customer experience for anybody, um, I think is critically important so that we can take that type of information and then craft campaigns that are much more um, 
event driven, right? So like what what that customer or prospect is telling you um, and when they're ready to sort of act on it and putting those pieces of most relevant content in front of them um, at the right time and at the right cadence. Yeah, so so many interactions within two days, some ineffective. Can you share your open rate now? If you went from 1% in the old days, like what is it now? Well, the 1% is actually when we would send out direct mail and, and do, you know, just kind of blast everybody. So right now, I think our open rates hover. Um, so we have two different types of, of communications we send. One, anybody can sign up for. Um, we call them our free email newsletters. Um, it's certainly not free to acquire the names that get added. We spend quite a bit to try to acquire the right names to be added to those email lists, but it's free because it's free to the subscriber. And the open rates on those are probably anywhere from 10 to 15%. Um, and of that, you might see 3 to 4% of folks click through. And then we also have the the publications that people pay, right? They pay $49 or more a year to receive. And the open rates on that are 30 to 40%, which is actually yeah. pretty shocking if you think about it because someone's actually paying to receive this information and then they're not even accessing it. Yeah. Um, and that all, both of those things speak to what can we do to improve um improve that interaction so that, you know, we're putting the content and, and some of it may have to even do with um, the way that we deliver it. Maybe email's not the most effective way now to be you know, communicating um, with our subscribers. So it's really looking at all of that to figure out how do they want to receive the content? Maybe they'd rather have, you know, an SMS push when they have an alert ready. Right. I say that. I actually tell my family, you need something urgent. It, email, forget it. Exactly. <laughs> it's got to be text message and mm-hmm. call me. Um, what, so given that you've worked in this industry for so many years and in BI and analytics and data for so many years, w- one thing we debate is the role of the chief data officer or the chief analytics officer. And your title is actually CAO, correct? That's correct. So some people have said, no, we we actually need two distinct roles, one that guards the data, that would Mm -hmm. be the CDO, and one that unleashes it for value and analytics. Do you agree with this? Is it one person with multiple roles or is it two distinct jobs? I think that either model can work. Um, I definitely think that they are discrete responsibilities. I know that my role is to in, unleash, you know, the power of of the data, and then I partner with our CIO who um, is responsible for, you know, creating the infrastructure and the the governance uh, around how we're going to manage the data and lifecycle it and make sure that, you know, we're being um, that we have a strategy around um, ensuring that it's protected um, and governed, right? Because we can't just have it everywhere because then as as different laws like CCPA come into effect, it's going to make it impossible, right, for us to adhere to them. So for us, um, he has a lot of other responsibilities too in addition to that. But for us, it's really just a very strong partnership um, because being the one that, you know, happens being that our, on our team, we're responsible for realizing the power of the data. It also just means that we understand the data the best. And so we really need to partner with those folks who are trying to figure out how to manage the data to make sure that, you know, the way it's set up is in a practical way. And likewise, when we set up our 
processes and we set up you know different ways of uh, making the data available we need to make sure that we've done it in a way that it can be managed so i really do believe it's a strong partnership between those different areas but i don't see any reason why that couldn't in you know certain organizations roll up to one individual um yeah yeah i mean i just think if what's the point of capturing the data if you're not going to unleash it so ha- have a plan is that one person or is it multiple but make sure it's it's always focused on the value exactly so if, as you look ahead 2 years from now the pace of change i think has gone through the roof frenetic you think about personalization you think about ethics what is your hope for your role and your use of data 2 years out For us, I think it's really just continuing on the mission of what we already have. Um, I think we've created a good baseline uh, model for working with the different businesses and how they get insights out of the data. Um, It would be ideal if we could get every user who has to interact with data to make daily decisions able to do that in a way that is not taxing or manual, um, where it's clear to them how that they can interpret the information, make decisions from it, um, get the support that they need. Um, I think that all of those things are great. I think it involves more than just what what my team is able to deliver, though, and that's why we're really kind of working through, you know, all of the different levels of buy-in that we need um, from leadership on the publishing side as well as leadership from uh, my my executive team as well. Um, I think that the it's going to continue to evolve. Um, you know, we have 800 users now. I see, you know, that it's not really about the number of users you have, but it's about being able to get to each business um, the information that they need to make the decisions um, that they need to make. Um, and then I think that it's it's also about staying a step ahead and and um, thinking about you know what can we do to leverage the data, not just where the endpoint is a human making a decision, but also what can we do with the data so that we can help um, use the, the the tools and technology we have to power and help make some of the um, the decisions easier by packaging them up. So you know, just providing um, better visibility into what that customer journey looks like, so that as marketers have to make decisions, it's there's a framework for it where they don't have to necessarily look at every single detail um, and try to predict what's going to happen. But we we sort of package it up in a way that you know we can see where are the decision points that they can make. So maybe leading them to here's here's your data, here's the decision point, and here's the recommended action. Exactly. Just making it clearer so that it isn't such a maze of, of so many decisions that, or so, so much data to put so much data in front of them um, when not necessarily there isn't really anything they can do to impact that, but to just make it cleaner and clearer for them where they can make a decision that is impactful. Right. And do you think that sometimes even in the face of data, People don't take the expected or most obvious action. Yeah, I see that happen all the time in the interactions. Why do you think that is? Why? I think that folks go on their instinct and Still on more instinct. Their gut. Oh, mm-hmm. Killer. <laughs> but you have so much. Is you have so much data. I, I often say if I look in banking when when it was the days of it's a wonderful life and walking into a bank, you could rely on your gut because you knew the person mm-hmm. that you were serving. In a digital world, you just have the the digital footprint mm-hmm. and breadcrumbs. 
you don't, your gut may not be valid. Mm-hmm. I agree. So I like to end Grace on um, kind of an unexpected question, but we're both so fortunate to work in a very fast paced, challenging industry with so many talented people. And if you think beyond the obvious, your family, your health, what are you grateful for? I, I actually am really grateful that, you know, we spend so much time in our careers and I'm grateful for being able to work in an environment where, um, I enjoy coming to work every day, um, and I feel like my boss, you know, has confidence in, in you know, what my role is and the value that that I can deliver with with the support of my team. And I'm just really grateful that that's how I can spend my days. Um, I think that the even this morning I was having coffee with um, uh, someone who who goes to uh, Loyola, where I graduated from. And just being able to talk to her about, you know, she's getting ready to graduate in May and, you know, just being able to sort of share and have those meaningful relationships. I I think I'm very grateful for just being in a role where I'm able to do that throughout my day. Great. Thank you, Grace. Nice to have you here. Thanks, Cindy. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or listen to more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout on Twitter at BI Scorecard. The Data Chief is brought to you by our friends at ThoughtSpot. Searching through your company's data for insights doesn't have to be complicated. ThoughtSpot makes it easy. With ThoughtSpot, anyone in your organization can easily answer their own data questions, find facts, and make better, faster decisions. Learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.